went to school at for my undergrad at Moody Bible Institute, which was in downtown Chicago. Uh, being in Chicago, everyone wants to come and visit you. So friends always wanted to come and spend a weekend in Chicago, or my parents would come and visit. And one of the things you always do when you go to Chicago is you go to Michigan Avenue. Um, I don't, has anyone been to Michigan Avenue? It's it's a uh, it's a beautiful area. It's a unique place. Tons of shopping. Um, you know, really fancy stores and. Um, and also just beautiful architecture that you can see. And so we'd always go to Michigan Avenue and, and walk around. And Michigan Avenue is kind of a unique place because it's it's not only all these beautiful things, but it's it's an amazing amazing convergence of, of people, all different people. You can watch, watch someone with a fur coat walk into Tiffany & Company to buy something really expensive, and as they are walking in, they walk by the person who's on the side of the street begging for money to pay for their next meal. And so there's this this vast difference between those that are extremely wealthy and even those that, that have nothing. Not only that, but because it's kind of a tourist attraction, there are people from all walks of life there from all over the world. And so just walking down Michigan Avenue is 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 fun, I guess, in a certain sense, to, to see all these different people from from the the rich to what we would consider the poor and and then everyone in between. There's just this convergence of people that's that's going on here. And, and as we look at Luke chapter two, I think there's this amazing convergence, we might even call it a collision that's that's going on here. Now a collision is not usually a good thing. That's that's not something. But but this is a what I would call a, a glorious collision. And I think we would say this is how I want to state the point of Luke two one through twenty, and it's this: at the birth of Jesus, we witness the glorious collision of the human and the divine. At the birth of Jesus, we witness the glorious collision of the human and the divine. And just as on Michigan Avenue, there's just this convergence of all these different kinds of people. There's this beautiful, glorious collision that happens at the birth of Jesus that brings humanity and divinity together, that brings God and man together in an amazing way. And this collision is not bad news for us, like most collisions. This collision is wonderful news for us. Let's read this passage that we know so well from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. <clears throat> the text reads, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For under you, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. As with any passage of scripture, there's so much in here. Things that we won't be able to touch on this morning or to meditate on. But again, what we want to meditate on is at the birth of Jesus, we witnessed the glorious collision of the human and the divine. The first thing that we see here is the divine timing. I think that's the first thing that we notice and that, that Luke wants to point out to us is this divine timing. Luke, the historian, sets the birth of Jesus in its historical context, both in terms of the Jewish world as well as the world at large. And everything seems to be converging at this one moment in time when God is becoming man, when he is being born into the world. And there is this divine orchestrating of events happening that we can kind of step back and see and that Luke invites us to look into. We could say just as Mary's pregnancy was coming to an end and the time for her baby to be born was was coming, it's as if time itself has been pregnant with this waiting for the Messiah. And finally, with with his birth, it's as if time has, has wait, the moment the time has waited for so long to come has finally come. Galatians says that Jesus came in the fullness of, of time, that the cup of time had, had slowly filled to the point of, of overflowing. And Jesus later says, if, if you've been reading along, we read these words in Luke 10, 23 recently. It's, he says to his disciples, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Isn't that a, what an amazing thing? Not just the disciples, but for us. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is a unique moment in history, a moment that everything has been leading up to and a moment that everything else will flow out of. So think about all these events that have led up to this particular moment, the the filling up of time, the fullness of time that overflows with the birth of Jesus. You may have been wondering, what's with the blue cups? Everyone was making jokes about Kool-Aid, but... um, Let's just think about this this concept of the fullness of time. I thought this might be fun. It's a picture that came into mind rather than just saying it. Let's show it. So think about all the the events that are that are happening, the things that are that are going on. We might just look all the way back and think about all the prophecies about Jesus. The, the first prophecy in Genesis three fifteen that we can think about that the the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, and then all of the prophecies that go throughout the Old Testament. So we can think about the fullness of time in terms of of all these prophecies. So we'll just say this cup of blue water is the prophecy. Maybe I should have made them red and green, you know, Christmas. But so, what, so time itself is kind of filling up so that the prophecies come. Um, we might think about all the covenants, the promises that God makes. He makes a promise to, to Abraham, right? We studied that so recently. He makes a promise to Abraham that, that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed 
through him. He makes another promise, a covenant with, with David. King David, he says, David, someone will always reign on your throne. There will be a king always in your line. So there's this covenant made to David. Then we read in Jeremiah about another covenant, right? The new covenant, a new covenant that's coming where we receive new hearts. And so there's this longing for all these covenants to be fulfilled. So we think about the new covenant. We can think about just the things that we've been reading about here in Luke chapter 1. Who have we been reading about up to this point? In parallel with Jesus is John the Baptist. And as John the Baptist is born, everyone's saying something crazy is going on, something unique. Everyone hears these things, they see these things, and they, they start to wonder. So we could add the, John the Baptist and, and think about all that he was and what he had done. And still time is, is slowly filling up here. Then you look at the events that are just happening at the beginning of Luke chapter 2. He starts talking about Caesar. So Caesar issues this decree, thinking that independently he's doing all this. But God is orchestrating these events so that, that Caesar issues the decree and says, we're going to have a registration and everyone needs to go back to their hometown. And so Joseph is there and Joseph and Mary end up going back to Joseph's hometown, which, you know, it just happens to be Bethlehem, which is the place that the Messiah was to be born, according to the prophecy of Isaiah. And so Caesar is part of this filling up of time. He's slowly... He says what he's doing, but God is orchestrating all of the events. Not only that, but think about Joseph and Mary's lineage, that all the way back, back to Adam, that, that God knew Joseph and Mary would be born in the line that they were born in. And so that, that it, it's emphasized here that Joseph was of what line? It was of the line of David, of the house and the lineage of David. So all of these genealogies have been filling up up to this very moment. Man. And it's and it's full and, and time is time is pregnant with something that's going to happen. And who else is pregnant? Mary is pregnant. And Mary is pregnant and and, and she is getting ready to have the baby and at, at the just the precise moment she has she has the baby. And and you know just a little side note here. Did, did you know that, that with all the advances and is anyone excited about it? all the advances in, in medicine and science? You know, one thing we don't know, we don't know what causes a woman to go into labor. They don't know exactly what that is. And we might say that, you know, I wonder if it's just that God says, now, now is the time. It's, it's time for this baby to be born. And if we can say that about all pregnancies, then couldn't we say that about, about Mary's pregnancy, about the birth of, of Jesus? And so, Time itself is pregnant. Mary is pregnant. We've been waiting for, for, you feel this anticipation. I mean, this is kind of the anticipation, just a, a fraction of what people would have been feeling. And all of a sudden, at, at just the, the precise moment in the, the fullness of time, God says, now, and Jesus is born. And time itself, it's the fullness of time, and it, and it, and it overflows out. It's not as dramatic as maybe we thought it was going to be. That's, that's all that it is. But, but the fullness of time, you, you get this picture that everything is, has come to this moment, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is born. And everything flows out of that. Just this beautiful, divine timing. What an amazing thing, this God-ordained coordination of events and people and history, all to bring history to this crucial point when Jesus is born. We should also consider not just the events wrapped up in this divine timing, but, but as we think about the divine timing, who's involved in this? 
It, it's just humble people. So think second with me about the scene of humanity and humility. We thought about the divine timing. Now let's think about the scene of humanity and humility. We see the, the people that are, that are in this story. We've, we've been familiar with them throughout the passage. We've already taken note of Mary, thinking of her as, as just probably 13, maybe 16 years old. She's unmarried at the time of her pregnancy, and so her and Joseph's relationship would have been uh, surrounded by scandal in the small town of Nazareth. Everyone knew what was going on. And at this point, according to Matthew, they, they would have been married. But the text here says that they were just betrothed, that, that to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. And it could be that that's because they had not consummated the marriage, as we read in Matthew as well. So she is just um, his betrothed at, at this point. And so it seems that, and actually we see Mary go along for this registration, but according to history, we could probably say that, that she didn't have to, that Joseph could have gone by himself. She didn't necessarily need to be there. But it may be that, that Joseph brought her along to protect her from further ridicule. And, and he also knew that the time was coming, the time for her birth, uh, for Jesus' birth, for the, for the pregnancy was coming to an end. And so he brought her along so that he could be with her. And here they are. Think about the countless other couples and individuals and families traveling to the town of their birth to register in this massive census. You can think about just all the people, and Scripture just zeroes in on this one humble little couple. And they arrive in Bethlehem with probably many others. And it could be it was the night they arrived. It doesn't necessarily say that that's when everything happened. It could have been a little bit later uh, in their stay. But the time comes, as we said, for Mary to give birth. Now, it's very simple here, but, but don't, don't sanitize the story so much that Mary has no labor pains, no, no contractions. This was a birth like all other births. And so after all of the anguish, all of the, the labor, the, the tears, the uncertainty, Joseph doesn't know what's going on. There's probably not a midwife there to help. And after all of this, her firstborn son is born, and she wraps him in swaddling cloths. This would have been common practice to wrap the baby in swaddling cloths, even as we continue to do today. If you went to see baby Emma, you saw her swaddled in a blanket. And I watched uh, my daughter, Noelle, this week was playing with her dolls, and she knew how to swaddle that baby as best she could, you know. She swaddled it. So this is common. But what was unique is, is where the baby was laid after he was swaddled. What's it say? It was in a manger. That's the unique thing here. It says she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough. And it's, it's here and here alone that we get the idea that, that Jesus was born in a stable. Isn't that interesting? There's no other passage, there's no mention of animals or hay or donkeys that are shaggy and brown. There's, there's, no, um, there's no mention of a stable. But So the fact that Jesus was laid in a manger, we assume mangers are in stables, so Jesus was born in a stable. And it very well could be. Um, it's not Christmas time, so I can dash some of your hopes and dreams. If it, it, it may not have been a stable, to be totally honest. Some people say that it was in someone's uh, 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 the home of a poor family. Uh, the animals would have lived with the family, and so the, the, there would have been a feeding trough in this large common room. Um, there's a lot of traditions, ancient traditions, that say it was in a cave. That Jesus was born in a cave, and there would have been a feeding trough. There are others say that, that it happened in a courtyard outside the inn, so underneath just the open stars in this, this courtyard outside of the inn. 
One commentator I read, Leon Morris, says regarding the exact location of Jesus' birth beyond being in Bethlehem, he says this, quote, we do not know. <laughs> and he goes on, we only know that everything points to poverty, obscurity, and even rejection. Poverty, obscurity, and even rejection. Just think about the humanity, the raw humanity of Joseph and Mary. They are not rich people. They don't have a place to stay. They are obscure. You, you, remember, we're just zeroing in on this one couple in the midst of all the massive humanity and even rejection. The rejection is seen there in verse 7. At the end, they laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Uh, again, there's debate. What does that word in mean? It could mean a lot of different things. But what we know for sure is that there was, there was no room at the inn. There was no room in a family's home. There was no room anywhere comfortable and proper for this pregnant woman to have her baby. So it is a scene of, of rejection. And again, it's a very raw scene when you think about it. It's filled with, with difficulty. It's filled with physical pain, emotional pain, poverty, rejection. One of my favorite Christmas songs begins with these words. It says, it was not a silent night. I think that's the case. Sometimes in the sentimentality of Christmas, we make everything look very beautiful. This was not that beautiful. The, the birth was amazing. It, it was a miracle of God that Jesus was born into the world. But everything that surrounded it, again, speaks of poverty, obscurity, rejection. So Joseph and Mary are there. They are, they are humble. They are human. But they're not the only ones that are deeply humble and, and human in this story. Verse 8 says, and in the same region, there were shepherds. Shepherds. What are shepherds doing in this story? Shepherds would have been viewed with eyes of suspicion and contempt in those days. They were seen as untrustworthy. And the nature of their profession made it such that they were usually unclean, according to the Old Testament law. And not only that, but they were unclean, according to physical eye and the smell of your nose. These were unclean guys who worked with animals all day long. They were seen, they, they were, again, looked at with contempt, and yet these were the first guys who hear the glorious news from the mouths of angels that the Messiah has come into the world. This whole scene of, from, the, from the manger that Jesus has laid into this, this humble couple, and then now to the, to the dirty, obscure shepherds, it speaks without words what Jesus makes clear throughout his ministry, namely this, that he didn't come to heal the healthy. He came to help the sick. Jesus in his ministry was willing to touch lepers. And he was willing to cast out demons from the outcasts of society and to show compassion to the weak and to the helpless. He would sit and he would eat with tax collectors and sinners who were the rejects of society. He would make Samaritans, who were probably on par with, with shepherds, he would make Samaritans the heroes of his stories. He would exalt the faith of Gentiles, which the Jewish people would reject. Jesus didn't come as a, as a clean and reputable Pharisee or, or a, prince, a prince because that would have encouraged this religious self-righteousness or, or the, the rich in their, in their ease, but rather he comes in the humblest way possible so that he might say with his mouth later, but with, with where he was born now, he can say that the good news that he's bringing is for all people. 
is for all people. It's for people like Mary and Joseph, and it's for it's for shepherds. It's for everyone. The good news is for all, and all all includes you and me. I love First Corinthians one. It talks about how God does not usually choose the wise of this world. What does He choose? He chooses the foolish. Why? To confound the wise. And he chooses the weak things of this world. Chooses the weak things to confound the strong. So if you are a child of God, if you have heard the good news of the Messiah, you've received it by repentance and faith, it's not because you're something special. It's because you're like Mary. You're like Joseph. You're like a shepherd. You're just common. I'm just common. It's not because of who we are. It's because of who God is so that he might receive the glory. Nobody looks at the shepherds and say, yeah, they should have heard it first. No, they, we marvel at that. And the same thing should be true for us. We should marvel. Why has God revealed this to me? Why should I know the beautiful truth that Jesus has come to be the Savior of the world? What we see next is that the message of the angel to the shepherds drives all of this home. So we've seen the divine timing. We've seen this scene of stark humanity and humility. And now we're going to switch back to the divine, and we see this divine proclamation. The divine proclamation. Can you imagine how dark, how dark a Judean hillside would be? I don't think we know what darkness is because of city lights, but there would not have been any city lights around that would have dulled the, the darkness. Just think about being a shepherd out there with your sheep. Your eyes maybe have adjusted to the darkness, but it is pitch black. And then all of a sudden, just light flashes, and an angel appears, and he is engulfed by the glory of God. I mean, I can't even, you can't even wrap our minds around it. I know people often talk about scenes that they'd like to go back to in the Bible. I would like to go, I'd like to be on that hillside um, and see what it looked like. The next words that they, that are in the text here hardly even need to be there. They were out there keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. I mean, the, what it's communicated is they were, they were like really, Afraid. I mean, really afraid. We can't use uh, enough words to say how scared they were. Just as Zechariah had been filled with fear and Mary had been filled with fear, even most more so here, that they, they probably fell on the ground. They assumed that they were dead. And then the angel comes and he says the first words. What are the first words that the angel says? The first words that angels always say. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Put yourself back in uh, in grade school, or maybe maybe high school, and imagine getting called to the principal's office. Uh, I, for me, it, it, it would have come over the intercom. You know, they would come on and they would say, "Andy Sabaka, please report to the principal's office." <laughs> and at that moment, the whole class goes, "Uh oh!" You know, and everyone's, "Oh, what'd you do?" And you got to go to the principal's office. Why? Well, because we always assume that if you're going to the principal's office. Something bad is going to happen. You've done something wrong, and it would seem that this is true with angels, that when an angel appears, as our Jesus Storybook Bible calls it, they call the angels a warrior of light. I like that. That's a good picture, a warrior of light. When angels show up, it, it looks like bad news. Something is going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen, but it doesn't look like it's going to turn out well for us. But they're told not to fear. Not to fear. Why not? It says here, fear not, for, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all 
the people. The angel is not coming with words of judgment and, and death, but he says he's coming with good news of great joy for them and for all people. His message is the opposite of judgment. It's a message of blessing and peace that's going to cause everyone, Jew, Gentile, men and women, old and young, rich and poor, priest and shepherd and kings and, and carpenters like Joseph, everyone is going to shout with joy because of this news that, that the angel is bringing. And what is the message? It's very clear. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day, today, this very evening, in the city of David, in, in Bethlehem. Remember Bethlehem, about how the prophets have, have talked about this in Bethlehem? It's just it's just a stone's throw away from this Judean hillside where you guys are at. It's happened in, in Bethlehem. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a, a Rescuer, a, a Deliverer. But not just not just any deliverer, not, not, not just like Moses or, or even like King David, but a Savior who is who? Christ. He is, he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one that we have been waiting for. The Messiah has been born, a Savior who is Christ, the Christ. And not only is he Christ, but he is the Lord. He is God in the flesh. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's, it's the message that Zechariah was singing about. Do you remember what Zechariah was singing about? He says that God has visited and redeemed us, raising up a horn of salvation, just as he promised he would, so that he could, he could bring salvation, this promised salvation, in the forgiveness of sins, so that we could serve him without fear. Because if we're forgiven of our sins, then we don't have anything else to be afraid of. This is, this is the core message, is that fear is, is wrapped up again in, in judgment. It's wrapped up in in sin, and the message that the angel brings is, a Savior has born. This is this is good news. He is going to save you. He's not coming to judge. He's coming to, to be your rescuer. We talked in Sunday school about, um, about sin and how sin is a word that is not in vogue today. It's, it's not one that people want to talk about very much. And I think most people, if you said, what would you do if an angel appeared before you? They would say, well, I'd probably just talk to him. They don't get. We don't get the sense of of who God is and His holiness and His righteousness and His and justice. And so, when we think about Him appearing before us, we don't fall on our faces. Why? Because we don't understand our sin. But I think the shepherds understood. We are. We're. It's over for us because we don't have a leg to stand on before God if He's coming in judgment. So the good news is that we don't have anything to fear. Why? Because God hasn't come to judge. He's come to save. He's come as a savior, a rescuer, a redeemer. The next words there, the, the angel doesn't tell the shepherds to go find a baby, but he assumes that they'll want to. And so he says, if you're going to go look for the baby, he says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Again, very normal. And lying in a manger. Not normal. <laughs> this is unique. There's something amazing about this. And before the, the shepherds can come up with questions or excuses like Zechariah, all of a sudden the sky explodes again, even brighter, with more angels who are praising God. 
And whether they're singing or shouting, it really doesn't matter to me. I know there's debate about that. I, I don't really care. What they're saying is, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the good news. This is the good news that the angels have come to proclaim. It's that God shows favor and love to human beings, that the divine and the human have have collided, but God doesn't come in this collision with a rod of judgment, but rather, as Zechariah said, he comes to show us the path that leads to peace, and it's peace through his Son. Our greatest need in life is peace with God, because our sins have caused a division between us and our Creator. And our sins have earned us nothing but God's wrath. But glory to God in the highest. He has chosen to send his son to make peace. This is the message that we proclaim. This is the core of what we believe. That the fundamental thing that we need in life is peace with God because we are sinners. But if God would come and forgive us our sins, then we can have peace with him. And how does he accomplish it? He accomplishes it through the greatest collision of the human and the divine. And the greatest collision of the human and the divine in this passage is where? In the manger. Jesus is the greatest collision of the human and the divine because the baby that's lying there swaddled in a manger, completely dependent on the care of his mother, is God himself. Colossians 1.19, Paul puts it this way. He says, in, in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then verse 20 says the same message that the angel said, in him was the fullness, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, and here's the key, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross, because the baby that was lying in the crude wooden manger would one day grow to hang on a cruel wooden cross so that we can have peace with God, so that God could show favor to us. And not only that, but so that God could be glorified. Look look at what verse 14 says. Glory to God in the highest, and on on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God accomplishes both. He says, I will be glorified, and the way I will do it is by showing, by giving peace with men, by showing them favor. So we are to live for the glory of God, and the way that we glorify God is to be saved by God, to have our sins forgiven by God. And if that would happen, then God is glorified in the highest. I would say if this is the first time that you've ever heard this message, or maybe it's just the first time that it's clicked in your mind and and in your heart, then you should respond as the shepherds did. What did the shepherds do? Verse 15, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. What do they do? They seek for Jesus. They run to find him. God, in his kind sovereignty, has made known to them this wonderful news, and they want to see it in person. They want to see it for themselves. So they go to look for the baby that they've been told about. Now, we always think that they got they went right to the, to the stable or wherever Jesus was born. But they had to find the baby. 
I imagine them in Bethlehem knocking on doors. Hey, are there any babies in here? And, you know, they go and they walk in and there's a baby, but is the baby in a manger? No, well, that's not the right baby. So they go out and they knock on some more doors. And finally they find, oh, this is a baby. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths. Where is he? Lying in a manger. This, it's just like the angel said. It's just like they told us it would be. And so I think that, 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 that when God reveals his salvation, that's what's going on here, isn't it? That, that God is the one who initiates this conversation. God is the one who says, let me tell you about the good news. And then what's the response of the shepherds? We've got to find this out. We need to seek Jesus. So I would say, again, if this is the first time it's clicked in your mind or your heart, seek Jesus. Run, knock on every door that you can. Try to find this baby because he is the one who has come to bring peace on earth. And if we have seen this salvation, if we are like the shepherds and we've gone and we've found the baby lying in the manger, just as he said, if we see the one who has made peace with God, then we also should respond as the shepherds did. Because what do they do? They make it known. It says, they went in with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Just pause and think about that scene maybe for a minute. Mary and Joseph are there. They just had their firstborn son. They're trying to figure this thing out. And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of shepherds walk in. It's, it's amazing. They start telling this story. It's something unique is, something, is happening, something amazing. In verse 17, And when they saw it, they made known the same that had been told them concerning this child. Look what they, what they say, though. When they saw it, they made known the same that had been told them concerning this child. They didn't go around and say, We found a baby. In a manger. And they didn't go around and say, a bunch of angels appeared to us. What did they say? They said, listen to what the angels told us. They said, God has come to show favor. They said, God, something's going on here, and God is going to make peace with us. That's what they told everyone. Because it doesn't matter. You know, sometimes I think it's nice to be removed from Christmas season a little bit because we get caught up in the in the sentimentality. But just kind of remove all that. What's the core of Christmas? It's not necessarily just that there's a, we, we get caught up in, in maybe the, the thought of a little baby or the thought of all these, these angels. But what's the core? That God has come to make peace with us. That God has come to forgive us of our sins and to show us the path to peace. So they go and they pound on the same doors that they probably pounded on looking for the baby and they say, God has come to us. It's just like the angels told us. And, and God is pleased with us. He loves us. He wants to make peace with us. He wants to bring forgiveness of sins. And those who have ears to hear this will, will do what everyone does. Verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, there's just a, a response of what's what's going on here. Something amazing is is happening. Those who have ears to hear will pause and, and wonder, and those who believe it will do what the shepherds did. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Again, God is the one that's receiving glory in this whole thing. God is the one who is lifted up and exalted. Glory to God in the highest because he has shown favor to us. He has shown kindness by making peace with us. So at the birth of Jesus, we witness the glorious collision, the glorious collision of the human and the divine. We've watched the, the divine timing of things, how the fullness of time came and overflowed out in the birth of Jesus. 
We contrasted that with this this stark scene of of humanity and humility, that raw picture of of this poor and and rejected couple and these shepherds. We think about their humanity and their humility. And then again, we hear this divine proclamation, the good news that Jesus has come to bring peace on earth through the forgiveness of sins to all who will repent and believe. And that he's done it. How has he done it? He's done it by bringing about the grandest collision of the human and the divine in the person of his son, in Jesus, who was born as God and man. This son who would live a perfect life, who would die on the cross to pay the price for our sins, and who would rise again so that we might receive forgiveness of sins and be glorified, and who is coming a second time. And when he comes a second time, he's not going to be laid in a manger is going to be exalted on a throne and he will make all things right. This is how God has made peace with us. And if you do not know peace with God, it's what you need more than anything else in this world. So I would do what the shepherds did. Seek Jesus. Look for him wherever you might find him. And if you do, then what is our response? It's to tell everyone. To not tell them sentimental things or to tell them things that they don't really need to hear, but to tell them the one thing that they need to know. You need to be at peace with God. If you are not at peace with God, then you have something to be very, very afraid of. But God has come and he says, fear not. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy for all people. It doesn't matter who you are. God has come to make peace with us. And then we would rejoice and praise him for all that he's done. And so I just think even as we head back into our neighborhood, and so much Sunday is, is looking forward to the week ahead as you head into your workplaces, as you interact with people that maybe don't know this message, that we would look at them and, and not say they, they need this or, or they need that, but we would understand what is the deepest need that we all have? It's peace with God. And that Jesus has come to give us peace with God. And how through the forgiveness of sins, because of his tender mercy, and he's done it in the collision of the human and the divine in his Son, Jesus Christ. And if we would repent and believe, then we can be saved and know peace with God.